This is Ringler Radio, where you get all the latest news and information about the construction settlement industry from the experts in the know. Ringler Associates, the undisputed leader in structured settlements for more than 30 years and the only broker you need. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General Structured Settlements, Aviva, The Hartford, Liberty Life, Mass Mutual, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential. Now, join Ringler Radio host, Larry Cohen. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome again to Ringler Radio. I'm your host, Larry Cohen, and this edition of Ringler Radio is coming to you from the annual meeting of the American Association for Justice that used to be called ATLA out here in Chicago, Illinois. And uh, Chicago's a great spot for a convention. It's a great town. And if you haven't been out here yet in a long time, come because it's really looking spiffy out here. There are a lot of new buildings and a lot of great people. Remember, you can listen to every Ringler Radio show free on our website, ringlerassociates.com, or on legaltalknetwork.com. And a special note here, you can also get CLE credit for listening to Ringler Radio at law.com's CLE Center. Take advantage of that. That's a a real treat for you. Well, with me today as my co-host is another great Ringler associate and a great friend from our office in Louisville, Kentucky, Cindy Shanley. Cindy has more than 30 years' experience in claims, insurance, and uh, structured settlements. She's an associate based in our Louisville office, as I said. She handles a lot of different cases, a lot of diverse uh, types of cases, general liability, medical malpractice, uh, from the structured settlement perspective. And she's done an awful lot of those over the past few years and is a real star in our industry. Plus, she uh, can get you some really good Kentucky Derby tickets if you ask her <laughs> nice. So that's, uh, that's always a plus. Cindy, welcome to Ringler Radio Thanks, with me. Thanks, Larry. It's good to be We're here with you again, especially. Oh, yeah, it's great. Well, today we're going to talk about uh, a very uh, interesting and important topic, the issue of birth injuries. And our expert guest on today's program is attorney Paul Cossie, who's a partner in the Cossie Law Firm, also located in Louisville, Kentucky. And I guess that's not a coincidence, is it, Cindy? Not at all. That's great. Paul uh, is a well-respected expert in the area of personal injury, medical malpractice, and birth injuries. Uh, Paul, welcome to Ringer Radio. Thank you, thank you, and uh, thanks for inviting me. Well, it's great to have you here. Uh, Let's start out with some very simplistic kind of information for our audience. How do you define a birth injury? Um, A birth injury would be any uh, sort of injury that a child sustains or suffers during the process of birth. Um, Typically, what we think of with birth injuries are... Uh, injuries to the brain, which often can occur from either trauma during the uh, delivery through the birth canal or uh, situations where the baby, for whatever reason, is is deprived or loses oxygen or blood flow to the brain, causing damage. You also can have injuries to other parts of the of the body, either the neck uh, and the nerves in the neck. Uh, and the, you, you can also have fractures there. We also typically will often see injuries to what we call the brachial plexus, which is a collection of nerves that run down the neck into the arm that allow you to move your hands, fingers, and, and arm in order to feel and move. And those, is, that, is that basically caused by the delivery itself, pulling the baby? or is How, how are some of those injuries you just mentioned right. uh, The The um, uh, injuries to the baby's brain caused by lack of oxygen or blood flow are usually caused by some interference with the ability of the baby to get oxygen from the mother. So the placenta is like the baby's lungs when when the baby is inside the uterus. 
And if there's any interference with the way the placenta and uterus is working, then the baby can be deprived of oxygen or blood flow. So things people will think of is an abruption of the placenta, which is when the placenta tears away or separates from the uterus. That can cause serious problems to the baby. The uterus sometimes will rupture or break, and that oftentimes will happen, or we see at a higher uh, rate of that occurring when a mother has had a prior cesarean section. Um, any interference with the umbilical cord, uh, we either call cord compression or a cord prolapse will compromise oxygen and blood flow to the baby. And most babies can tolerate in those very severe situations about 10 or 15 minutes of that before they're at a very severe risk of, of brain damage. Then you had asked about the injuries to the, to the brachial plexus or the yeah. nerves. Yeah. Th- those are often caused or are related to um, when the shoulder is often, we see the most often in situations where the shoulder is stuck after the head has been delivered. So the uh-huh. baby's head is delivered, and rather than the shoulders coming out afterwards, they're stuck behind the pubic bones uh, okay. or the pelvis. And uh, if that's not properly, if the baby is not properly um, uh, positioned. P- positioned or mm-hmm. moved out, mm-hmm. then you oftentimes will see a situation where there is. Uh, pulling too hard or moving of the head and neck away from where the shoulder is stuck, and that will stretch or tear the nerves. Paul, how does one prove a birth injury is the fault of a doctor? It seems like that would be a really hard thing to do. Uh, it is a hard thing to do. Um, typically what we have to do is is get all of the medical records so that uh, we have a complete documentation of uh, what happened both during the pregnancy. It's important to know what uh, what risk factors may have been present during pregnancy. We have to get all of the labor and delivery records and then what they call fetal monitor strips, which is how they monitor the babies during labor to see how their heart rate is doing, and then all of the pediatric or newborn records. Uh, then you end up having to hire experts to look at the issue of whether the nursing staff or physician uh, did not act as a reasonably prudent or careful doctor or nurse under those circumstances and then have other experts to address whether that negligence or failure to act properly caused the injuries. Um, so typically it's a situation of conducting an investigation by getting all of the important information and then hiring and consulting with proper experts to uh, answer those, inqu- those questions. Did they do something wrong and did that cause the injury? I would imagine that a lot of parents who have a child that has an injury at birth like cerebral palsy, they don't really know what to do. What is their course of action? What should they do first? Well, um, it is important in in many states there is a longer period of time to file a a lawsuit on behalf of an injured child, but it is important actually uh, after things settle down to to try to get in touch with a lawyer at an earlier period of time because in the information collection area, it's very important to get the records and get uh, get a hold of people who may be witnesses while things are fresh in their mind. And most most parents uh, tend to come to lawyers either because they're concerned about the high costs of, of taking care of their children over a longer period of time and concerned about who's going to do that when they're no longer able to. Or there are situations where uh, they simply have questions about what happened to their child and why. And many times the medical profession does not uh, provide them with either satisfactory or straightforward answers about that. You know, it's interesting, Paul. You mentioned this um, this whole standard of care, this litany of, of items you must go through to prove whether there's been a birth injury and negligence that caused that birth injury. Let, let's try to talk through some of those key uh, key element points. For example, this standard of care. Was the standard of care followed by these physicians, nurses, et cetera? How do you go about determining 
what is the standard of care, and then how it was deviated? Okay, that, that's a very good question. And, and the, the in the medical community, um, they often will like to take the position that there really is no standard or set of rules and that it's sort of a judgment call by the doctor. But, but the truth is that most professions, and, and in this area with obstetrics or birth injuries, there are a set of published standards of what minimal, uh, minimally accepted things should be done for certain types of problems. So, for example, it is generally agreed upon if the baby has a very low heart rate for a long period of time, meaning a, let's say a heart rate of 60, which is about half of normal. Mm-hmm. If that proceeds for more than a few minutes, then an immediate action is required. And there are published things by both the nurses' associations for labor and delivery and for the obstetricians that suggest you're to do that. So published guidelines or standards is one way you, you look to see. Um, many of the institutions or hospitals will have policies or procedures that set forth what's to be done when you're dealing with a particular problem. And the hospital uh, oftentimes will have a situation where they've not followed their own rules. Uh, and, of course, it's important. And, and, in fact, you must have expert testimony or proofs, meaning we would have to have a physician or nurse come to court and criticize the behavior by saying they did not follow what a reasonably careful or prudent doctor or nurse would do. Well, I, I would assume that uh, getting doctors to come in and testify against other doctors is not always the easiest thing to do. And uh, how have you found that in your cases? Uh, I'm sure they're attacked by being mercenary or whatever. What, 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 what's, your, what's the game plan you use? Well, uh, uh, first of all, it is difficult to get uh, other physicians to uh, who are qualified and very well credentialed to testify against other doctors, particularly within a similar geographic area. For example, I'm in Louisville, Kentucky, and, and it would be very difficult, almost unheard of, for us to have a, another physician of the same specialty from Louisville to criticize somebody. Right. Um, and even that goes even from a broader geographic you, as you go further out. But... Uh, typically, in terms of finding qualified experts, uh, we tend to uh, oftentimes look at the medical literature, who's published on a particular topic or area, uh, and who has experience and is considered a leader in that area. We like to uh, know, hopefully, that the expert has had some experience uh, testifying in prior cases so that this is not, hopefully, the first time they've done it. Um, and other lawyers sometimes can be a source of information about experts. But uh, I would say in my case, primarily, we, we, we look at medical literature and, and who's published and who's, who's considered sort of an expert in the area. Cool. Paul, talk a little bit more about how you can pinpoint the kind of the cause of the specific injury and how do you identify the timing of events that leads up to a specific injury? Sure. Um, for the, I'll do them in reverse order for the ones that I've talked about. For a brachial plexus injury, uh, the most important factor to determine that the child had some form of injury at or near the time of birth is to see some evidence shortly after birth that the arm is not working properly. So obviously if the baby doesn't show any evidence that the arm is not working properly, and by arm I mean all the way from the shoulder to the fingers, for several days after birth it's more likely that something happened in the nursery to injure the child than at birth. Um, Another thing you would look for is uh, to determine that it's more likely that an injury happened during delivery. Uh, You would want to make sure that the arm is not already atrophied or small, which would would suggest perhaps that the the child was injured earlier. And the other thing you would look for is associated other injuries like bruising on the arms, bruising on the head, bruising on the face, which would indicate perhaps that the, the delivery was traumatic. For uh, lack of oxygen or blood flow to the brain during labor, 
uh, I think it's probably universally agreed that the most important fact or factor you have to have present is some evidence of dysfunction in the nervous system uh, when the baby is, is born. So uh, they'll be looking for things like, is the baby uh, a poor feeder? Does the baby, uh, is he limp or floppy, meaning he has poor muscle tone? Sometimes that will go from floppy to high tone or, or muscle rigidity. They'll look to see whether the baby has seizures, and oftentimes those will be seen within 6 to 24 hours after the injury to the brain has occurred. So those are what we call a newborn brain dysfunction type thing. There are other tests doctors can do, like EEGs, to see how the brain waves work uh, and see whether there's seizure activity or brain dysfunction. But if you don't really have any evidence right after birth of some uh, central nervous system or brain dysfunction, then then uh, you probably don't have a case. As an example, uh, there are oftentimes children who are diagnosed with some problem later on in childhood, six months, 10 months, 12 months for the first time, who appeared perfectly normal at birth, went home from a normal newborn nursery on the same day. And in those cases, it is most likely not a birth-related injury. It's most likely to be something that happened earlier in pregnancy or a developmental problem. How how critical are those, uh, they call them APGAR scores that they take? How how critical is that in determining, from your perspective, if there's been an injury or problem? Um, APGAR scores are an important uh, uh, piece of information in showing that the baby has has had some, uh, well, basically in showing the baby is, A, not adapting well from the process of birth to newborn life, and secondly, they do indicate the baby has been stressed or is in poor condition. And so the things they look for in an APGAR score is the baby's tone. If the baby has normal tone, they'll get two points. If they have low tone, they'll get one point. If they have no tone, meaning they're floppy and lifeless, then they'll get zero. And they go through a number of other. There's five total of those. One is heart rate. So a normal heart rate would be two points. A heart rate below 100, which is abnormal, would be uh, one point and no heartbeat or, or a substantially lower heartbeat would be zero and so forth and so on. But yes, a very a very low series of APGAR scores would be consistent, not necessarily proving, but consistent with a baby that's uh, perhaps had no oxygen or blood flow right before the delivery. You know, I'd imagine, uh, Paul, any of these birth trauma cases, I mean, the parents are in an emotional, you know, nightmare. It's a quandary for them. Uh, I'm sure they oftentimes even have guilt feelings themselves about what they might have done. The mom might feel that way. Uh, how, how do you deal with all that, uh, that anger and the frustration and all on the part of the parents? Well, it, it's, uh, as I said, I think one part of the healing process probably is, uh, and that's one thing that the legal process maybe does help with, is helping to understand what really did happen. And sometimes, you know, after an investigation, our opinion may be that, that it was not a birth-related event or it was not an event that could have been avoided. And that, that is helpful in dealing sometimes with the frustration and sometimes just understanding what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, if, in fact, uh, it, it turns out that there was something that was... Uh, that took place during the labor or during the birth process that was avoidable, then uh, the litigation process or the lawsuit process will take a while. And and, uh, there is a lot of frustration, and and there's frustration sometimes with the legal process and how slow that it may be. Um, But ultimately, the goal is to provide for the child and, and put them in the best position possible. And at the end of the day, when you're successful in cases like this, you're able to do that. You talk about how how long does the process usually take? so that parents can kind of 
get ready for it because I know you have to talk to them about that. Yeah, I, I, actually, on the first uh, the first time I meet with them before I've even agreed to accept a case, but have only agreed to investigate, we would explain that that it is typical or usual for a case uh, involving a birth injury to take on average between one to three years from mm-hmm. the time it is filed in court till the time it is resolved, either by a trial or a settlement. You know, as you sit here and, and you look at it, and, and especially a lot of the public looking at medical shows on television or legal shows on television, they always see, or even movies, they see the uh, the hospitals oftentimes trying to uh, change the, the documents, trying to, you know, fudge the, the figures in some of their reports and early reports. Is, is, that, is that a real problem, uh, the roadblocks thrown up by the defendants or the hospitals in these kinds of cases? You know, remember in the verdict where they changed the, the number of hours before feeding or something. How, how, does, that, uh, how does that impact you? Are, you? are you skeptical about what you're seeing in those reports from the hospitals? Uh, yes, you can be. Uh, you mentioned APGAR scores yeah. before. Sometimes we'll have a situation where the APGAR scores are higher or close to normal, and yet we know either from videotape of the child at birth or, or what, was, what was actually done by the uh, nursing staff to try to resuscitate or help the baby that the APGAR scores couldn't have been that high. Right. And there's ways to try to prove that. In terms of medical records, I think, um, Unfortunately, there's not oftentimes not a good way to prove something's been done, and frankly, I think more often than we than we would hope, something has been done to change them. Uh, and certainly, I've had personal experience where we did catch them making a significant change with the records. And I've I've seen uh, situations at uh, at, at trial where juries who may not have had you know a real problem with the outcome of a birth get livid about the fact that the hospital may be trying to cover up its error more than anything else. Yeah, that, that that's completely true. I mean, uh, uh, evidence of a cover-up is certainly uh, a very powerful piece of evidence that would help and go a long way towards being successful. Paul, talk about a case that you've handled that kind of stands out in your mind as one that was uh, unmistakable uh, uh, illustration of birth malpractice. Okay. Well, there, there's a recent case I have, and actually it's uh, uh, in, in addition to the outcome or result for the family, which I think was, was excellent, we were able to, to make a difference, I think, in, in the practice in the community. Um, we had a physician in Louisville who had, unfortunately, uh, had a long pattern of, of birth-related complications, meaning that there were at least several prior circumstances where nurses would call him with a concern about the baby's well-being, and he would not respond or appear in a timely fashion, the babies would go on to be damaged. And this particular doctor had been sued on several occasions and had uh, had settled, meaning that they had paid substantial sums of money. And yet the hospitals continued to do nothing about his practice. So he continued to see babies and mothers and deliver them. And uh, unfortunately, what the hospital's defense, usually in cases like that, was, was well, we, we called him, but he didn't respond. So we had a case where, once again, uh, during the entire evening, the mother had uh, and baby had evidence that the, that the child was in trouble and the nurses were calling. The same physician would not respond or appear at the hospital. And actually, by the time he finally came, this baby was not only uh, deprived of oxygen so long that the brain was damaged, but 
Uh, the baby was essentially born dead and lifeless with zero APGARs, which means there was no evidence of, of life. And it took 13 minutes uh, before they even found any sort of a heartbeat. The child lived mm. for 12 hours and then died. But we were able to, in that case, sue the, hospi- the hospital, not just the doctor, for continuing to grant this doctor staff privileges and keeping him on the staff without uh, any restrictions or limitations. Because if you were going to allow him to practice at the very least, when we've seen a pattern of not appearing when nurses call us, not delivering children in a timely fashion, something should have should have happened. And ultimately, uh, as a result of our lawsuit, that doctor did lose his privileges at that group of hospitals, plus all the other hospitals in Louisville. And, and the I'm happy to say the Kentucky Medical Licensure Board finally did indefinitely, meaning forever, restrict his obstetrics privileges. So he cannot practice obstetrics in Kentucky anymore. Interesting. You know, we've had other guests on from other jurisdictions who have mentioned they had uh, caps on non-economic damages and various types of cases. Are you uh, in Kentucky subjected to any of those limitations? Uh, currently in Kentucky, uh, if a child is uh, is injured from any birth-related uh, problem, there are no caps on damages, meaning that the jury has the, has the full discretion to decide what's fair and reasonable based on the evidence that's heard. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned, there are other states that, that not only have caps on pain and suffering type damages or loss of enjoyment of life, but have caps on all damages. Right. And, uh, I'm licensed in Indiana, and they have caps on everything. I mean, the, the total amount of the jury award, which is very unfortunate, and, and many lawyers will not take cases there because of that mm-hmm. or have to explain to the family from the beginning, even if we're successful, there won't be enough money left to take care of the child. Well, that's all very interesting. We'll explore it a little bit more uh, after a short break. Let's take a break now and hear from some of the folks that make Ringler Radio a reality. And then we'll come back with a lot more from Cindy and Paul uh, on this very interesting topic. We'll be back in a minute. This is Ringler Radio, Internet radio from Ringler Associates. Quite simply, the undisputed leader in structured settlements for more than 30 years. Since 1975, Ringler Associates has provided the finest structured settlement services to injured parties and their attorneys. Experience counts. Over 130,000 cases structured. This is Ringler Radio, internet radio from Ringler Associates, placing more than $18 billion in structures over the past 30 years and one of the few companies that truly enjoys the trust of all parties in the settlement process. Ringler Associates, the only broker you need. Listen to all the Ringler Radio shows. Just go to ringlerassociates.com and click on Ringler Radio and choose a topic. Ringler Radio is produced by broadcast professionals at the Legal Talk Network. Did you know you can download Ringler Radio to your iPod? Just go to iTunes and subscribe to the Legal Talk Network. It's free. We invite you to listen to our other shows on the Legal Talk Network and become a member. It's free at www.legaltalknetwork.com. Did you know Ringler Radio is one of the top three rated shows in iTunes? Thanks to all of our listeners who download all the Ringler Radio shows. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General Structured Settlements, Aviva, The Hartford, Liberty Life, Mass Mutual, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential. Did you know that Legal Talk Network shows are also available as CLE? Including Ringler Radio. Visit Law.com's CLE Center at www.clecenter.com. That's CLECenter.com to enjoy listening and get CLE credit. Welcome back to Ringler Radio. 
I'm Larry Cohen, your host, along with my colleague, Cindy Shanley. And uh, as I mentioned in our opening, Cindy has a tremendous amount of experience in the structured settlement field and also in claims and insurance management. She's uh, our associate based in Louisville, Kentucky. And our guest is uh, also from the great city of Louisville, attorney Paul Cassie. And we're here talking about uh, a difficult subject. It's the subject of birth injuries. Paul, you know, birth injury uh, malpractice claims, as we all know, in all types of jurisdictions around the country are difficult to prove. They're they're tough cases, and uh, they're expensive cases to pursue, uh, especially with all the uh, discovery and the depositions and the experts. How, how does that all impact you as you as you evaluate cases? Tell us about the expense of, of these cases, and also they're just not easy to to, to prove. And juries sometimes are uh, disappointing. Right. The the uh, expense point you brought up is an excellent point. The uh, average cost that we've seen for uh, taking a, a case involving a birth injury and then preparing it for trial has gone from let's say fifty to a hundred thousand dollars. We're talking about not lawyer fees, just costs for hiring experts, travel expenses, exhibits, everything else, yeah. to now more like on average between a hundred to two hundred and fifty thousand dollars on average. So what that means is if a lawyer or law firm is going to properly represent a family and accept a case, that is a commitment by that law firm to put out at least two hundred and fifty thousand dollars to get the case ready to properly try it. So yeah, that that's a significant hurdle or roadblock. You were talking about those earlier yeah. uh, in terms of, of handling cases. In terms of whether you or how you select cases, it does make a difference that you have to feel like you have a very good likelihood of winning the case from the lawyer's perspective to proceed, and you have to have very serious damage, which which we do in this area, mm-hmm. to be able to justify spending that kind of money. To recoup all the money you're going to be putting right. out to expense. Right. And and you have to be pretty well capitalized to be able to do that. And, and uh, I know there are other firms out there that provide some help to you in terms of uh, the economic side of things, but, you know... It, it's a, it's got to be tough to pick those really good cases to get out there and, and go after. It it is it is and and as you said it's um, uh, you have to be you have to be somewhat selective in yeah. what you in what you do. Um, you had asked me a question before about uh, uh, in addition to the cost about the the difficulty proving them to juries. I think and yeah, I wanted to address exactly. that briefly. Um, in, in any malpractice case, I think we're finding now uh, nowadays more than ever that juries are skeptical of, of injury cases and lawyers and that juries are more skeptical in the area of medical malpractice or obstetric cases so that they almost want to impose a higher standard of proof than the law requires, like a beyond a reasonable doubt. Yeah. They also seem to want to see uh, intentional behavior by doctors. In other words, well, they may have been careless, but they didn't do it on purpose. And so it's important for lawyers to spend time from the beginning of the trial to explain to the jury that the law really doesn't impose those types of burdens, that if they had done it on purpose, we would be having a criminal trial, not a not a negligence trial. Um, but those are certainly roadblocks or things we've seen quite a lot recently. And I guess tort reform kind of tort, plays into that as well. Tort reform doesn't doesn't help. And particularly mm-hmm. in the obstetric area, you know, when, when the president of the United States is on, on – television doing a State of the Union saying that uh, uh, no one's going to deliver babies or where are all these OBGYNs going to be. It certainly doesn't help you. And again, I think if you have a good meritorious case and a family that deserves uh, to be compensated, you can overcome that. But the difference is it really does not start as a level playing field anymore. We start out behind Mm -hmm. and have to establish your credibility uh, very much at the beginning of a trial. Paul, families 
need to understand that there are some laws that they need to understand, like statute of limitations as far as these kinds of cases. Can you talk about that and any other laws that they need to be considered sure. concerned uh, about? A statute of limitations essentially means that there's a certain period of time, and it does vary from state to state. Um, so it's important that you talk to a lawyer that's licensed in the state where, where your child has been born or may have been injured. Um, but those require that a lawsuit be filed in the court within a certain period of time. And if the lawsuit is not filed uh, within that period of time, then the rights to, to make a claim are forever gone. Uh, for example, in Kentucky, you would have one year typically to file a lawsuit for medical negligence. In some states, Kentucky is one of them, when you're dealing with a minor or child, that period of time can be extended. Um, but once again, as I mentioned earlier in the program, uh, you typically, for investigation purposes and otherwise, do not want to delay your investigation and, and going forward. And the only other laws, I think, that are typically present for these kinds of cases, which which um, Larry had mentioned earlier, there are certain states that have caps on damages, meaning that, they, that there's a one-size-fits-all approach that uh, no matter how badly the child has been injured, no matter how bad the negligence is, there's a certain amount that the jury can award. Interestingly, in many of those jurisdictions, they don't tell the jury that. The jury thinks they can award whatever is fair and reasonable, and then the judge comes in and limits it. Um, and uh, and some states, because of what you call tort reform, uh, impose other restrictions or limitations that uh, that make it more hard to proceed with a lawsuit. You know, Paul, even though the parents in these cases are, are traumatized by it, and, uh, and with good, good reason, it's really about the rights of the child. Isn't it? Aren't you the voice of the child in these cases? Yeah, yeah, that's true. And and you, it's a you're really kind of interestingly enough the lawyer for the family. Yeah. So the parents are the ones who hire, and you have to work very closely with them. But ultimately, at the end of the day, the money that is recovered if you're successful is for the benefit of the child. And and uh, we explain to clients early on that any money that comes from this will be for the benefit of the child, and that the court will supervise how that money is spent. Sometimes we will file uh, a separate claim for the parents if the law allows that so that they can have some additional money, not just um, to uh, compensate them for their real loss, uh, but also so that they can do some things for the family outside the court restrictions. Well, Paul, you know, we're, we're structured settlement people here. That's, that's our bias, and, uh, and it's our business. But uh, in your opinion, what's the best way to manage that money for the, for the benefit of that child's long-term future? Well, in every birth injury case that I, that I have handled, and, and really any catastrophic or serious injury case, uh, I strongly recommend that, uh, that a substantial portion of the money go into a structured settlement. Uh, and there are a number of reasons why that's the case. Um, uh, there are obviously tax advantages for that. Mm-hmm. Um, it does make it easier for the family to manage the money over a longer period of time, and it does assure that there will, no matter what happens to the parents, and as I said at the beginning of the program, most parents or many parents come to see lawyers because they're concerned about what's going to happen when they're no longer around or able to care for the child. A structure makes sure that there will always be a constant stream of money available to provide for the child's needs. So those are all important reasons. And and uh, uh, I've had situations even where I've made sure that that the structure advice that I've given uh, be followed because uh, you know as I said the court has to approve most of these settlements. And so uh, my recommendation would also be made to the court who approves the settlement that that money should be set aside in some sort of a structure. 
Well, that's that's good advice, and I'm sure Cindy's happy to hear that, too. I am very happy to hear that. (laughs) But, uh, you know, it's important that everyone understands that uh, through this concept of the structured settlement, uh, it's such a blessing for families like that to be able to know that child's going to be cared for and prevent that dissipation and, and that misinvestment. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Ringler Radio. We've had a, a very interesting conversation today with you, Paul. I'm, I'm thankful for your being here. It's been a real pleasure. Uh, if somebody wanted to get in touch with you, how would they do that? Uh, I'm in Louisville. I have an 800 number. Let's I, have it. It's 888-258-4216. And Cindy Shanley, Ringler Associate, great friend. How, how would they get in touch with you? Um, I also have a toll-free number. It's 877 877- Two eight eight zero seven four one, or email C Chanley C C H A N L E Y at ringlerassociates.com. Well, great. I'm Larry Cohen again from Ringler. Again, ringlerassociates.com is a great place to go. Hope you listen to a lot of our Ringler radio shows. And in the meantime, thanks for listening to us. And go out and have a great day. Thanks for listening to Ringler Radio. Ringler Associates experience counts since nineteen seventy five. Ringler Associates has provided the finest structured settlement services to injured parties and their attorneys. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General Structured Settlements, Aviva, The Hartford, Liberty Life, Mass Mutual, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential.